Hello, everyone, and welcome back to Anthropologically Speaking. I'm Katie. And I'm Isabel. And today we have a special guest, Maeve, with us. So if you'd like to introduce yourself and kind of tell us briefly what you do, who you are. Yeah, for sure. Um, hi, I'm Maeve, and I'm a PhD candidate at the University of Edinburgh right now in the Department of Social Anthropology. Um, but my project is more of a interdisciplinary thing where I kind of look at anthropology and also a bit of zoology. So the field is kind of emerging, emergent, um, but it's, you know, I, I think I would like to call myself an anthrozoologist. And my doctoral project is about multi-species kinship between dogs and their humans in Edinburgh, as well as online spaces. And I kind of focus on ethnographic storytelling as my project aims to document the experiences and implications of human canine bond. That That's is so, so cool. Yeah. And I love interdisciplinary stuff. I myself uh, kind of hang between disciplines. So I, I completely feel you on uh, how cool interdisciplinary studies can be as well. Um, so, yeah, I think. Uh, yeah. So, wanna... yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> so what got you first, like, really interested in anthropology? Like, what kind of got you in the field? You know, so I, I only decided to take an anthropology course in undergrad because I just couldn't stand to take a 9 a.m. lecture in my schedule. <laughs> um, <laughs> and so in, in high school, that was my first brush with anthropology, I guess. I, I took this all-in-one social sciences kind of course in, um, in Ontario, in Toronto, called Anthropology, Psychology, Sociology. Yeah. And I took that in grade 11 and the anthropology portion of the course kind of introduced us to that, this like early hominid skulls and that was kind of about it. So I never really got a good idea of what anthropology was and it never mentioned anything like ethnography or colonial histories or reflexivity. Um, but then university level anthropology courses that I ended up taking just because I hated waking up early in the morning <laughs> really made me rethink anthropology and what I could do with it. So the course that I really, really loved that made me change my major to anthropology was called Environment and Culture, which was like an introductory course to ecological anthropology. Um, and I decided that I wanted to challenge anthropology's coloniality and whiteness by being a person of color who studies whiteness through ethnography. And yeah, I think what keeps me interested in anthropology now is how, how versatile it can be and how well it can play with other disciplines, like we just said. Mm -hmm. um, yeah, and I think the work that I'm doing is not you know, strictly anthropological, and, but anthropo anthropology did provide me with a lot of the tools that I use to conduct my research today. Yeah, that's super cool. I always find it really interesting um, how some people, you know, some people are like, oh, I want to be an anthropologist and other people, I kind of had a similar thing where I was like, oh, I'll, I'll take this class. And I was like, oh, okay. <laughs> I really like this. Um, that's really cool. Um, so it sounds like, uh, you know, your research interests have kind of evolved. Um, so how, how did your, your current um, interest in interspecies relationships spark? Um, I don't think there was a spark, really, because um, it was it was more built up gradually throughout my life. Um, I grew up around dogs, and my maternal grandmother and my parents really nurtured and fostered my love of animals generally in my childhood as well. 
And my, my mom suggested on multiple occasions that I, I should look into vet schools. And I, I also pr um, briefly studied primatology during my under, undergrad as well. But I don't know, I just, I just had to choose dogs. They're always in my life. They always come back. Um, and I think my research topics generally tend to stem from my own experiences and the questions that arise from my experiences. So I think, yeah, living with all the different dogs that I was lucky enough to meet and have in my life really got me here. And Frank, my dog today, really pushed me to think more about what it means to be related to a dog and to have a dog in my life, to share time and space with an entity that belongs to a whole nother species. Um, yeah, I think this research is, I think of this research as part of my responsibility to my dog, to get to know him as an individual, as a family member, and also as a species, so that I can provide him with the care that's meaningful to both of us. That's so awesome. I feel like, yeah, like I absolutely love dogs. Like <laughs> they're number one in my heart. I had to shoo my dog away today before we started the interview. Aww. He was throwing his, throwing his bone around. <laughs> it's like, you're gonna disrupt us. But no, it's really interesting. Uh, like reading your papers and stuff to kind of view our relationship with dogs in a more profound, deep way than just the thing that makes us smile every day, you know, like it's really, really unique and interesting. Um, so yeah, if you kind of like just, you mentioned kind of when you were introducing um, yourself briefly, like what you're researching and the work that you're doing, kind of, do you want to delve into that a little bit more and tell us about, like you sent us a paper, do you want to kind of just give us a quick, like, just tell our audience about like what about what that's all yeah. about stuff. Um, so so my my current research has just been pretty much my PhD because who has the time to do anything else really? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it's it's about multi-species kinship between dogs and their humans. And broadly, I am looking at the economies and the ecologies involved in the relationships that people have with their dogs. And these are really widely cast nets on purpose because economies can really include pretty much any kind of interactions that you can have, um, especially in terms of uh, like resource management or consumption and the decisions that people make when it comes to those consumption choices. Um, and ecologies I kind of define also very widely as like bodily and affective engagements that we have with one another. So it's just kind of like looking at kinship very broadly as whatever that it is that we do that build this relationship and form the foundations of our relationships. Um, and I just finished my field work a month ago or so. So I am now in the process of trying to organize all of my data into different themes, which is fun, but also kind of an overwhelming task. Yeah. Um, yeah. <laughs> so some of the things that I kind of aim to write about in my dissertation are um, the relationship between dogs and whiteness, which I think will be the central topic of this interview, um, and polyphony and polyrhythm of multi-species entanglements, and the multifaceted role of dogs as not just the dog. But um, yeah, outside of my PhD research, I'm, I'm actually a member of an independent working group that I would like to give a little shout out to. <laughs> um, it's called Dossier and it stands for Dismantling Oppressive Structures in Anthropology. And we're working to address and challenge the systemic barriers that exist in our discipline. And we want to demand that higher education institutions be more involved in this active process of dismantling these institutional and systemic structures. 
So um, yeah, one of my big goals as a scholar is to prioritize decolonizing and decanonizing processes in anthropology and um, in pedagogy research, as well as how it's administrated in, um, administrated institutionally. So yeah, we're actually gonna have our first conference in November. And if you wanna find out more about it, you can follow us at DOSI Anthro on Twitter or check us out at dosianthropology.wordpress.com. Super cool. That's an absolutely important and incredible mission. So um, I, I commend your work on that. Absolutely. Um, so uh, in terms of dogs and humans, uh, can you can you tell us a little bit about kind of the entangled history of dog and human uh, social status and its its implications? Yeah, sure. Um, so you can kind of trace this entanglement of dog status and human status in Britain, at least to the Victorian era. And this is when this idea of standardized, purebred, pedigreed dogs with good genes emerged. And it mapped on really nicely to how the upper class or the royals like to think of themselves as, you know, from good blood or good stock. And in that way, it's it's quite intersubjective, um, linking the two species together in a really strange but a really conscious way. But it apparently made sense to enough people that it kind of stuck around. Um, but on the flip side, I think it can also really easily turn into things like eugenics. So dogs are, you know, generally speaking, at least really loved by humans and are considered to be worthy of our care. Um, but some of the discourses that emerged during the Brexit campaign here were really disgusting, like comparing migrants and refugees to vermin and virus that needed to be exterminated. So the problem is when, when humans are thought of as non-human beings that don't even deserve to be cared for and as entities that don't even deserve to live. Yeah. Yeah. That's, yeah. Sorry, <laughs> like, that's a dark yeah. thing to say. <laughs> no, and I thought that was really, really interesting in your paper when, um, like, I don't have the exact quote pulled up or anything, but how white supremacy kind of creates a hierarchy where even, um, like, you talked a lot about Black Lives Matter and um, just like systemic racism against um, just people of color and how this hierarchy was created where uh, people of color are placed beneath animals and work animals, I think you said specifically, where they are obedient. And so that was like a really, like I just thought it was so profound and it kind of like clicked in my head. It was like, holy cow, that's so true and awful. <laughs> like, I don't know another word for it. Like, it's just <laughs> awful. So um, anyway, I'll kind of go on to the next question though. Um, so how have dogs and other animals been reshaped in the imagination as controllable? And what are the implications of this? Um, I mean, like look at dog breeds, right? Um, they have literally been reshaped. Um, they, they came from wolves and now we have breeds like, like pugs and Frenchies and their, their, their shapes have changed because humans were like, yeah, sure, we can make that happen just for the sake of it, I guess. Um, and the implications for the dogs, it can really be devastating. The typical example would be brachycephalic dogs or dogs with flat faces like pugs and French bulldogs. And their faces being squished in serves no functional purpose really, but to make them look cute to humans, to appeal to humans aesthetically. 
but it obviously impedes their breathing, which honestly really sucks for them. Apparently it's been described as like breathing through a straw for all of their lives. Yeah. And I'm I'm not saying that pug owners or French own, like Frenchy owners are bad people or irresponsible dog owners as individuals, because most dog owners really do love and care for their dogs. But as you said in the question, it's it's this um, imagination of dogs as controllable, and that's rooted in um, yeah this idea of control, which I want to problematize. Why was it that people decided that pushing a dog's snout into its skull was a good idea? That they should pursue and the answer is basically it was because they could and I think that shows a lot of cruelty on the humanities part um, a lot of we can see glimpses of like white supremacist thoughts in this as well and we also see this in other domesticated animals as well like like horses um, for example like Arabian horses have what they call a dished face where their facial structure is really like concave and that makes it really hard for them to breathe as well. But because it's a desirable trait in that breed, people pay a fortune for these horses that are essentially living with really painful deformities that were brought about solely because people decided this was a good look for them. Yeah. And like, I mean, it's there's a definite prioritization there of, you know, uh, humans and, you know, what we like aesthetically over how these animals can breathe and their functionality as living beings um so that's yeah that's definitely a really problematic um relationship that that exists um so so in in your paper that you that you sent us um your idea that quote with the status of human beings and that of non-human animals firmly firmly joined in a hierarchical conceptualization of the world uh, different kinds of people can be mapped onto different kinds of animals for discriminatory, discriminatory purposes, end quote. Uh, it really struck something with me. Um, and it seems to me that this sort of language has become so common that it's it's normalized. And indeed, the hierarchy itself is normalized and ingrained in the human conscience. So can you talk a little bit about how hierarchical animal language is used to paint other humans as lesser than beings? Yeah, Um so this isn't really related to my research, but I think it's it's a better example for like a broader audience because mm-hmm. it still speaks to this weird hierarchical language. And I think the example that's really good for this is remember when um, H&M ran that ad with a black boy wearing a green hoodie that said coolest monkey in the jungle? Oh, I don't remember that, but yeah. that's awful. <laughs> and I was like, okay, like yikes. But then it turned into... A bigger yikes when I saw the orange version of the same hoodie, which was modeled by a white boy, and it read Mangrove Jungle Survival Expert. And, oh. <laughs> yeah, and, and I, I just refused to believe that this was just a mistake based on unconscious bias. Like, I think there was a reason why, you know, a, a group of people who are in charge of making decisions about who's going to model what, what are we going to put on this shirt, you know, you know, they they thought, yeah, that makes sense. And they slapped on that label on a black boy saying he's the coolest monkey in the jungle and a white boy was a survival expert in this jungle. Yeah. So, so problematic. <laughs> oh, wow. 
Yeah. yeah. Wow. That's, that's a really, that's a really, that's a telling example. I mean, that had to be, I mean, advertisements like that go through steps, right? Like there's a marketing team and there's like, and I mean, clearly nobody would have gone like, Hey, this is a problem. Yeah, I mean, how is so that not stopped that, like by some level? Yeah. I mean, exactly. it's confirmatory of that, that dynamic by just not stopping that process. Wow. Just just shook. (laughs) (laughs) Essentially, yes. Um, (laughs) I don't want to move on to the next question. That felt so. (laughs) Um, No, but so the love of of animals seems so extremely pure. And without examining it too closely, it seems like humans' love for animals shouldn't be um, intersected with racism. But you have shown, however, that these things are compatible. And How do you think that this has come to happen? So I have this theory that a lot of people who we could call Karens have their their entire moral identity rooted in their love of animals. So they believe that they're good people and this is an infallible position because they love their dogs or animals in general. But that's clearly not the case because people who love their animals and treat them well could easily be racist towards other people and I think this has something to do with this humanization of non-human animals and animalization of humans so if in their hierarchical conceptualization of the world their dogs are somehow a superior animal to humans that they think of as pests or vermin of course it makes sense for them that they wouldn't be that morally bothered by being cruel and dehumanizing to people who they didn't even think of as humans in the first place. Yeah, I remember an example from a class I took, I think in third year, so a few years ago, um, I think it had to do with um, the Haiti earthquake and how all these people were dying and were sick and needed aid. And there were all these like animal activist groups in and like extracting dogs and saving dogs. And people were super concerned about these like street dogs and people are like what about the humans there like they're dying they're in need of like human compassion and help but it's all being directed towards these dogs that were deemed I guess more innocent or more worthy than the humans that like were really needing help so I thought that was kind of that kind of connects I think to and you know in the in the recent video of Amy Cooper who called the cops on a black bird watcher Christian Cooper in New York City's Central Park like she was basically strangling her dog along while she was calling the cops on him and so many people were like oh is that dog okay (laughs) (laughs) yeah yeah like that was the number one concern it's just yeah there's definitely an inequality there again that kind of brings up the hierarchy you talked about about who like white supremacists put on top and that sort of thing mm-hmm. um so, so oh go ahead go ahead, oh, no, go. Go. <laughs> no go ahead go. <laughs> <laughs> um so what do you think compels people to see themselves as um and as as you have put it i quote the arbitrator of human slash non-human distinction and quote as well as the arbiters of those who should live and who should die and who is considered contagious. Um, I don't think that people consciously see themselves as such. I mean, I, I hope not anyway, <laughs> but I think 
white norm like white normativity and white supremacy have a role to play in this and one of the things that whiteness does incredibly well is to establish itself as a detached position that only makes fair and rational judgments and from this detached position the human non-human distinction kind of allows them to animalize racially minoritized people by literally calling them animals when criticizing their actions that go against their white sensibility and morals while humanizing their dogs as you know their their babies they say fur babies and things like that and if anyone calls them out on their racism they can turn around and say what no this is this is fair and rational comparison for x y and z reasons that are rooted in white normativity and white supremacist um, white supremacism so it's it's really similar for you know the judgment on who should live and who should die and who's contagious and who is not like whiteness acts as if um as if it's objective which i hope we can agree that it's not um but by by branding itself as such at least within the bubble of whiteness whiteness kind of justifies their often racist and bigoted judgments by referring to their made-up fairness and objectivity, which are the kinds of ideas that have formed the ideas of um, West since the mm -hmm. Enlightenment. Yeah, that's that's really interesting to think of because, like, people they they're mapping things onto their own subjective compass of their own perceptions of how they see the world. Um, through their lens of whiteness and through the lens of whiteness that is so normative in our world. Um, and that's, that's something that I think um, even myself as a white person, I don't, I don't think of enough and I need to be so much more conscious of. Um, and I, I'm, you know, I think that there's an effort that needs to be made um, that white people as a whole, do need to be conscious of these these lenses that we that we put on on the world that aren't um, they aren't objective lenses, as you've mentioned. Um, so yeah, that's that's really um, really something to think about. Um, I guess kind of moving on, you discussed the aggression uh, of the white public in relation to the Black Lives Matter memes, uh, where it intersects with animals. Uh, I think it's a really unique outlet to view racism from. Can you speak to this further? Yeah, I, I think memes are really interesting cultural artifacts. They're so accessible. They're everywhere. They live in our computers, in our phones. We're kind of inundated with them at all times that we're facing a screen. And they also have this aesthetic power to them that is so conducive to bringing people together with a certain essentialist quality. Um, but of course, this means that memes can, memes that can convey a really racist message can bring racists together. So <laughs> um, I think this is one of the ways in which white supremacists or other movements based on shared hatred can gain traction so easily in online spaces, actually. Yeah, definitely. And I think, I mean, they're so easily disseminated. I mean, you you can always see, I mean, it's difficult to go on the internet and not see a meme that is charged in some way with a political or prejudiced idea um, that hasn't been shared so many times and been liked and commented on by so many people. 
So I think that's a really fascinating thing because I think most people just in their day-to-day life, they think, oh, memes are, you know, they're fun, fun thing, like internet, family, commenting, making memes. But um, yeah, as you mentioned, like the idea of them as a cultural artifact is just so fascinating because they do, um, they, they display and convey a lot of information that isn't necessarily readily available in other cultural forms. And that, that's a really fascinating Thing to look at I also think the comments like I know you study that in your research but are just so fascinating and I feel like I see these articles and memes and I just fuel myself by reading the comments because they make me so angry all the time <laughs> I know they're gonna make me angry but I still am like I have to look like, yeah you can expect <laughs> inflammatory things yeah um yeah. like it's it's an inevitability at, on the internet yeah yeah for sure um so the meme that you focused on in your paper was um, like to describe it, it was someone kind of like coming at a police horse, like looked like they were gonna um, harm it. So one thing that I found really interesting um, about that meme that you looked at was that's actually from a protest against Israeli action in um, Gaza. But the comments on the meme seem to be quick to associate the photo with the Black Lives Matter movement and protesters. And the original poster seemed to invoke the group's love of animals to propel a racist agenda. So do you think that this is telling in any way? Oh, for for sure. Um, A few group members actually pointed out that the photo wasn't even from a Black Lives Matter protest and that this made the meme something similar to fake news. But the original poster responded that it's not fake news because it relates to most people as its current news on an animal lovers group. Um, And this argument just went back and forth and back and forth a lot before the person who called it fake news initially literally said, oh my God, I give up. And I think at some point the OP literally said something like current news old pick, which to me just makes no sense. But Yeah. yeah, but I think it, if anything, it, it shows the stubbornness of, of whiteness and the lengths to which it'll go to defend its its agenda and its propaganda. Yeah, yeah almost like the irrationality of it. <laughs> it's just, yeah, so. Yeah, no, that's uh, definitely, you're definitely right about that. Really, uh, definitely stuff that... Uh, lots of lots of things to think about that don't always have words to express the thought there's been a lot of like thoughtful gaps in this episode where it's like let me think about that for a second yeah I mean though I it's so important to think about these things and um I'm so happy that you were you're coming on the show to talk with us about these important topics uh, and your fascinating research. So uh, I'm sure I can speak on behalf of both Isabel and I that we could probably talk to you for hours. Your research yeah. is fascinating um, and you've, you've got really incredible insights. Um, but uh, that, that's bringing us to close to the end of our episode today. So uh, one of the things we like to do around here is non-human listener shout out of the week because uh, it's fun because, you know, we talk about humans and but, you know, non-humans bring them into. So um, <laughs> uh, do you want to do you want to give our non-human listener shout out of the week for this week? 
yeah, I'll be a little selfish and then give a shout out to my own dog, <laughs> Frank, who is the best research, research associate that I can ask for. He's, yeah, he's currently sleeping in the bedroom, so he's not even here. But, you know. <laughs> he's on break. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Well, hi, Frank. You can hi, give Frank. him our love when he wakes up. <laughs> That's awesome. All right. Yeah. Well, thanks for joining us on this week's episode um everyone and uh thanks for joining us today Maeve um for some really insightful conversations uh so until next time everyone have a great week and stay bony bye (laughs) 